Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Talking Taste Buds. I'm your host, Venetia Falconer. And if you're new here, please do share, subscribe, rate and review. It makes such a difference in helping me get the word of the podcast out there. This week, I'm chatting to Swati Deepak. Swati is a global expert and champion of girls' rights. She has advised UN agencies, governments, private foundations and high net worth individuals on girls' rights and gender equality strategies. She has been instrumental in increasing resources to girls most in need around the world and she's the director of With and For Girls. The With and For Girls Collective is a group of organisations that share the common belief that girls are vital agents of change. They regard grassroots, girl-led and girl-centered organizations supported by flexible funding as propellers for transformational change towards a more equitable world. In this interview, we discuss how being more conscious of intersectional feminist change can be one of the biggest forces for transformative environmental impact. We know that educating girls is the right thing to do. It's the right thing for girls, it's the right thing for society, and it's the great thing for the planet, but we're just not doing it. We focus on the fashion industry and how it appears to be taking advantage feminism as a trend in the same way it is sustainability. Feminism is fashionable at the moment, but yet the actual industry of fashion is not feminist. Swathi is also highly passionate about food, as you will hear as soon as she shares how she broke her fast. But let us start as we always do. What did you have for breakfast? So I had hot water. I think we were both talking about our love for just hot water. So I had hot water this morning um, and I had papaya and I had an Indian flatbread called a tepla, which is um, I'm gluten intolerant. So it's a gluten free um, bit of bread that's flavored with lots of spices and fenugreek leaves. And it's delicious. That sounds amazing. I had papaya this morning too. Did you? Yeah. I love it. Papaya season. It's one of my favorite fruits. Do you have it with lime? fresh lime on top i actually eat it with my flatbread which is a bit weird oh no nice but it's like i love the spicy and the sweet together Mm, god that sounds like the best breakfast uh so let's talk growing up where did you grow up and was food a big feature of your childhood who did the cooking in your family and what are your kind of strongest memories of food So I grew up between um, Delhi in India and London in the UK and food is massive in Indian culture and in my family in particular. So grew up with lots and lots of food associations. Um, One of the first things that happens when a baby is born, especially in my family, is that the moment a baby is born, um, a finger is dipped in honey and then om is written on the tongue of the baby as well, just to kind of bring in the sweetness of life. Um, 
um, and just celebrate kind of this this child coming into the world. And so, you know, that kind of taste starts from day one of exploring different foods. Um, and there's quite a lot of rituals um, associated to as you grow up. There's certain rituals of when you have rice for the first time or when you have lentils for the first time. Um, so yeah, food is, it plays like an important junction at every stage. Whenever it's a good occasion, there's always Indian sweets or something sweet distributed and it's about um preventing the evil eye so if you're trying to celebrate something you have something sweet um, and it stops anybody um from saying anything negative that would bring like the evil eye and potentially you know bring about ill ill fate or ill luck to like the people around you um the cooking was done mainly by my mum and my grandmothers and my aunts. Uh, so in Delhi, big extended family households, lots of different kids running around everywhere, grandparents, aunts, uncles, parents, all in one house together. Um, and yeah, lots of uh, everything was sort of sourced and is still whenever I go back to India or um, and with my parents, everything is sort of made from scratch. So um as you know, as you may know, or as other listeners may know, um, you know, uh, my family is Hindu and the cow is sacred. Um, so you don't eat beef, but you celebrate the gifts of the cow, which include the milk. Um, and so uh, milk is uh, like brought from little dairy farms. Um, you make fresh yogurt from the milk every morning and you leave it out. You churn uh, the unpasteurized milk as well into um, homemade butter. You know, you buy your spices fresh they're all ground fresh for you you buy everything from local mills even now I think even though you've got stores and like Walmarts in India um, I think most of my family and most of my friends still buy from very they're kind of like their family flower guy and the family spice man and the family ex um, and you go to these people and you pick up fresh ingredients um and yes, it's like mainly the women who cook, but my dad is a huge foodie. He loves, loves, loves to cook. Um, so he's really good at making snacks um, and just making like just delicious food. So I grew up with just a real keen interest um, in food and in eating um, and talking about food, reading on food, eating food, all the food. Um, and just was really lucky. Indian food is so diverse. Like every state has got its staple dishes. Uh, everyone's got their own street food. Um, and there's just a wide range of different foods. So like on Mondays, my whole family fasts. So we don't eat certain foods. And it's not a fast in that we don't eat anything. Um, we There's certain foods that you can't have. So um, meats and dairies are out. Um, and so is anything that comes from a grain. So anything um, from wheat, rice, um, things like lentils and pulses are also out okay. as well. Uh, so you end up spending like Mondays just having fruits. Um, and there's loads of flowers and flatbreads that you can make that are just made from fruit flowers. Wow. So you get grounded fruit flowers, lotus root stem flower, uh, and you can still make like rotis or chapatis or or parantas like from um, from these. And then Tuesdays, most people um, are vegetarian as well um so there's this sort of 
order that comes with being in a family like that everyone kind of shares food and shares this sort of coming together on a daily basis which is Mm. lovely and something that I've tried to to continue um obviously living alone and trying to recreate all those recipes and I feel like I'm constantly on the phone to like my mom or my dad or my aunts or calling up my grandma if possible and just getting recipes from all of them I love that. That's the best way to get recipes, recipes that have passed down. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your career. What did you want to be when you were younger and what were you kind of encouraged to do by your by your parents? I wanted to work in something that was going to help people. I always knew that. Um, and first of all, I thought being a nurse or being a teacher would be great um, for that. Um But then I wasn't very good at teaching. (laughs) I wasn't very good at at blood or the sight of blood. Um, But I knew I wanted to help. And I think I was just really encouraged. My father had always been a business um, and in business. But my mum was a yoga teacher and uh, taught cooking. Um, And she sort of segued from working within yoga and working um, sort of on Ayurveda, which is like a type of healing through what you're consuming or what you're eating. And she sort of moved from that to looking at holistic ways to support people. Um, So she worked in the sort of late 80s with people who had HIV and AIDS, um, just around not just what they faced going through HIV and AIDS, but also how holistic therapies and ways of eating and types of healing practices that are known around the world to other cultures could be brought and embedded into British like systems. So she worked a lot with the NHS on getting different types of, I guess, more holistic therapies recognized um, within the NHS system. And wow, what amazing work. I know. And I think she's one of like many people who campaign for things that we now treat as normal in terms of the way that we access healthcare here but things like getting acupuncture or physiotherapy those were sort of unheard of or a little bit too hippie-ish yeah. I think back in the day but now they are part of um, the way that we access healthcare so I think I saw what my mum was doing and I was like I really want to do that and I was sort of I remember on HIV rallies being like I don't know 11 or 12 and carrying boxes of condoms around and my mum talking about safe sex and and um, different sex couples and so it made me really think about how could I have an impact and how could I have an impact to communities that mean so much mm. um, and I think what I was really lucky um, about just to your point on the expectations I think the expectations from a lot of Indian families is, um, you know, you be successful, you uh, educate yourself, and then you get married. So there's quite a lot of uh, patriarchal um, norms that are put on you, you know, your value as a woman is uh, looking a certain way, educating yourself to attract the right guy, and then getting married and settling down and kind of having babies. Um, But I was really lucky. My parents have always encouraged all of those things um, to be independent, to educate yourself. Um, But it hasn't been necessarily tied to doing that for the benefit of men. And so I think my step into into working has really been... um, 
around pursuing justice for communities, um, specifically young people, um, but much more over the last few years has been working in a lot of feminist or women and girls rights issues, uh, which is something I feel deeply passionate about because I come from a culture where that is deeply embedded. Mm. So you're currently the director for With and For Girls. Yes. Tell us all about this this job and what it entails so with and four girls is super super exciting and i'm i genuinely i think me and my team often say we're like the luckiest people in the world to have the job that we do um so with and four girls is a collective of nine different funders um funders being foundations and individuals who have made an intention that they will spend x amount of money per year helping good causes and so the job of foundations or funders is to get money to people who need it uh, for you know the alleviation of poverty for increasing women and girls rights to access gender justice Um, and so the nine organizations that got together which is stars foundation comic relief global fund for children empower nike foundation novo foundation and purposeful productions and plan international uk we all got together and it was at a time actually in 2014 um, there was a lot of stats around girls and um, you know one in 10 girls have experienced sexual harassment in their life uh, one in five girls around the world are denied their right to an education um, when we look across all of the things that are impacting poverty in the world girls are at the absolute bottom of that um, of that mix and Sadly, even though girls are the ones that are not accessing healthcare in the right way, not getting education, they're the ones who are victims of violence. Um, only two cent, less than two cents of every dollar of any funding that goes to aid and to the benefit of humans around the world, only less than two cents of every dollar goes to girls. Mm. And so there was a real big call to action at the time that the British government led, um, and they hosted a girls summit to present these factors and say, what are we gonna do about it? We need to change this tide. And so the collective was formed at that stage, which was, you know, we want to get our funding and get it to girls directly. And in the formation of it, we realized that actually girls have always been organizing. They, yes, they're the victims of all of these different types of injustices, but adolescent girls around the world are not victims and they're not hopeless. And when you look at like an image like Malala, you think, or Greta Thunberg, you think about, wow, like these amazing, young, empowered, strong girls. And the reality is, is there are like thousands, if not millions like them all around the world who are working together to try and change the world for themselves and change the world for others. So we came together as a collective. Um, We run an awards program every year. So we receive nominations from groups that are... um, led by girls so some of the organizations that we give funding to for instance are the oldest person is 17 um, and the whole organization is just adolescent girls who are fighting for their rights in rural Kyrgyzstan or in Mali or in Samoa or even in the UK um, and 
what we do is we go through a process by getting all these nominations from around the world in. And I think just to also say that it is a global award because there isn't any country where it's better to be a girl than it is to be a boy. Girls are severely impacted. And I remember reading a report from Plan actually that even in the UK, even a girl born right now today will still earn less over her lifetime than a boy born at the exact same moment. And that's 2019. So we wanted to recognize that A, we want to get funding directly to girls and to girl issues around the world. Secondly, that we wanted to recognize groups that were being led by girls or they were really centered around girls. They could be bigger organizations that are run by adults or work on multi-issues like boys, wider gender, wider poverty issues. But the programs that have girls in are actually led by girls. And then what's really great is you know, philanthropy has this um, power dynamic. I hold money and power and I'm giving it to an organization and saying I'm rewarding you for, for doing that. And we really wanted to flip that power balance. So our rewards are we put the decision making in the hands of girls and so we recruit panels of adolescent girls in each of the five regions of the world they are trained on issues that affect girls in their region so the girls in nepal for instance uh, get an understanding of what it's like to be a girl in mongolia or in the philippines or in india and then they will um, interview all the shortlisted organizations and they will interview the girls in those organizations and they then decide who wins an award and therefore who gets our funding so it's about trying to shift the power and about bringing girls into that position um, so I get to go to a lot of events to talk about what we're doing and meet with other funders and encourage them to to do the same. I work with an incredibly passionate team who are just deeply, deeply committed to getting girls this funding. And I think the most inspiring thing is I get to literally on a daily basis be schooled by adolescent girls who know their realities way more than we would ever give them credit for and some of the conversations that I have with girls are so deeply critical and so deeply informed that you just wonder why no one else is listening to girls like if we just listen to girls what a difference the world could be um, but they're just denied that right they're not brought to the table in so many situations um but I was in Nepal a few weeks ago and we had a number of winners from like Chicago, from um, Nepal, from Kenya who were there for a big feminist uh, conference. And some of the 16-year-old girls that you meet, you know, their, their lives have been impacted just because they're a girl. You know, they're denied a right to education. They're denied their rights. They're forced into child marriages. Um, you know, they've been raped, harassed, uh, gone through inexplicable um, issues and injustices, and yet their resilience and their resolve to change the world for themselves and change it for others is so incredibly inspiring. Like, you can't help but feel, oh my God, my job is to get you resources and to take a microphone so other people's like can actually hear what you're doing mm. and your voice is amplified and what an honor that is for me and my team to be a part of that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Recently, it was announced that educating girls was the sixth best way to reduce emissions and halt climate change, according to a plan by Project Drawdown. Why is the issue of educating females so integral to reducing our impact on the planet? You know, I think what Project Drawdown has really shown is that, you know, we talk about um, wind turbines, we talk about um, electric cars, and yet educating girls is way more powerful in reducing carbon emissions than both of those things combined. I think that's, you know, a really exciting thing. And the reason is that, you know, girls who are actually get to go to school, not only are you giving them the right to be able to travel and go to school and be educated, we know that girls over their lifetime will reinvest the majority of their funding back into, or the majority of their earnings, sorry, back into the local community. Um, we know that just by educating girls, what happens is they're less likely to um, have a child marriage, they're less likely to get pregnant and we also know that those are huge factors in not just denying girls their rights but the impact the knock-on impact that that has for the environment um you know actually being able to be educated enough uh to delay your delay your marriage delay your um birth of your children and to know that you can space your children out and not have child after child after child that also has a huge knock-on impact on the environment we know we're an overcrowded planet already Mm. um and similarly we know that 220 million women and girls around the world want contraception but they don't have access to it so you've got huge span of people that are giving birth and are going through issues way earlier than they should be um but enabling them to have an education gives them some sort of negotiating factor to actually stop that happening it also allows them to be able to access different types of livelihood that enable their own empowerment but also to think about how that they can use their resources effectively for their local community in a much more powerful way. It also gives them the autonomy to um, be able to understand and negotiate different kind of economic and social factors in their community. So all in all, we know that educating girls is the right thing to do. It's the right thing for girls, it's the right thing for society, and it's the great thing for the planet, but we're just not doing it. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of stats that I thought would be really important is um, the UN, uh, UNICEF, WHO, and the Journal of Consumer Research all did research 
that actually proves that women outperform men in environmental behavior. So women are um, recycling more, um, they're consuming less meat, they are uh, doing all the types of environmental behavior um, in a better way than men are. And I think a lot of that um, reason is because under the patriarchy, women are selfless, they're community orientated, they're socially minded, and also toxic masculinity. If a man displays lots of green actions, uh, it may brand them too feminine. And so I think that's a huge factor. Mm. I think the second issue is that Again, we know from statistics from the UN that 80% of people displaced by climate change are women and girls. So despite the fact that they're the ones doing the less to impact the environment, they're the ones that are impacted more when things go wrong. And they are actually 14 times more likely than men to face a risk of death from climate-related disasters as well. And then the third stat that I thought was really important for this conversation as well was that women are completely underrepresented in the fight against climate change. So if you look at any uh, government makeup of who the decision makers are, there are way more men than there are women. Um, in any uh, decision making body around climate change around the world, right from the very top, the UN Climate Commission, uh, all the way down to other committees, women represent one or two seats um, on those. So women are completely misrepresented every level of not just being impacted by climate change but even having a say in what we can do to change it and I think we all need to recognize that so that we can amplify women's voices and get them seats at those tables. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the trend of feminism a really mm. interesting term that you rose you raised before we stopped press record was a uh, girl washing yes which is taken from greenwashing uh talk to us a little bit what about what girl washing is and how the kind of fashion industry and media are capitalizing on the trend of feminism yeah i mean i think we can all see it especially being in london and going through all the shops every brand is talking about oh i'm a feminist and you can buy notebooks and you can buy t-shirts and you can buy key rings and postcards and pens and every sort of consumer item is stamped with a label of i'm a feminist the future is female yeah, yeah absolutely all of these things um and the reality is is that the term girl washing has come up to apply to lots of different sectors but particularly with fashion it's you know Feminism is fashionable at the moment, but yet the actual industry of fashion is not feminist. And that's the difference by you believing, yes, girls and women deserve equal rights or anyone who's even gender non-binary deserves equal rights. But the fact that you're buying a T-shirt from a different store or buying a notebook, like how was that produced? And if it's just leading to further injustices and further inequalities towards that specific group, are you even really a feminist? Mm. In a similar vein, someone sent me an image of um, a T-shirt saying there is no planet B on it today. And then someone commented underneath or do you ship to australia and they said yeah we ship internationally and i think we're just seeing this more and more this kind of discrepancy between the slogan of a t-shirt and then how it's being made who's making it how far it's traveling do you think you can be a feminist and support fast fashion personally i don't think you can um 
really claim to be a feminist and still consume fast fashion. Fast fashion, its whole essence is about consumption. And, you know, a lot of people talk about capitalism is the reason for that. It's nothing to do with the patriarchy. So capitalism is the one that's going, buy, 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 you need to look this way, you need to buy this to to feel good and to get that hit of, I've got something new and shiny and and so on and so forth and appealing to, I guess, that magpie in, in humans. Um, but the reality is, is that with, with that consumption, that overarching consumption, you are draining the world of so many resources um, in buying something, wearing it once and then throwing it away. Even if it is a t-shirt that claims, you know, I'm a feminist, the future is female. If you're only gonna wear that once or twice, you've gotta really ask yourself, do you really believe that the future is female if you're just willing to wear a logo that says it? And you're actually not willing to understand all the factors that sit behind fast fashion. What fast fashion is doing is on one side, it's about turnarounds happening so, so quickly that that just puts pressure on the supply chain down the end. You know, the factories that are in Bangladesh, in Guatemala, in Morocco are having to produce thousands and thousands of t-shirts at a moment's notice so that they are, they're in stores for you to buy in a couple of weeks time and that forces bad working conditions you know you, you can't think that there isn't a give somewhere down that line how is that cotton being made who's you know those farmers most of the people in the agricultural industry are women they're probably working overtime in really bad conditions probably denied any of their human rights on access to justice on labor unions on equal pay on um the timings that they're working on but they're also you know you're you're forcing them to to farm in a certain way you're then you know like dyeing things in a certain way, dyeing it different colors, you're mixing different chemicals. Most of these things are being mixed in other countries around the world that you can't see or see the negative impacts on. You know, chemical dyes, they completely leach like the soil of any worthwhileness. There are, you know, areas of Tamil Nadu in India, I know, that are well known for dyeing genes. And that runoff of all those chemical dyes has completely decimated the whole water table in like an entire state. You know, people can't grow items anymore. You can't farm that land. Um, that impact, you're literally that has gone towards poisoning different communities, most of whom are women and girls. Um, you're then coming up to uh, the way that, you know, fast fashion is even marketed. It's appealing to the patriarchy, you know, the, and we were talking about this earlier, Venetia, um, you know, fashion is like a trillion, you know, multi-trillion dollar industry. It has to rely on capitalism, like to get that turn of money coming in and out. And fast fashion is a way of quickly making that money you can buy 20 t-shirts in a year, even if you only need one. And women are the ones that are marketed to for that. It's like, well, women should look a certain way. You should be wearing new clothes. You should be wearing what's in fashion. Um, we need to, you know, 
fashion shows used to be like two seasons a year and now they're like way more like I don't know 10 seasons it feels like there are new clothes every single time you pass a store and who are they marketed to from the front they're always women um you know we have culottes and shorts and skirts and dresses and thigh length and knee length and floor length and there's so many things that we're told to consume to look a certain way to be appealing and appealing for who are we doing it really for ourselves um as individual women are we doing it for the wider like for acceptance uh, in society or even acceptance in ourselves um and that's what i mean by if you're consuming fast fashion not only are you refusing to recognize the impacts that it has further down the supply chain on those very women and very women and girls that your t-shirt is claiming to support um but also you're appealing to something where you're like well I should look a certain way and I should behave a certain way rather than just a general acceptance of who we are as individuals of who we are as women of who we are as non-binary uh people you know as thin as as fat people um you know, we should be just body positive in what we're wearing. And that's the real essence of feminism is about social acceptance. Um, so I just, from my perspective, I don't think you can be a consumer of fast fashion unless you consume it and you wear that thing for a lifetime. In a way, it feels like when you wear a slogan t-shirt, it is such a great way to make a statement. You know, some of them are really powerful and, and it is it does feel like such a great way to make a statement. And it's, you know, obviously the better way to make that statement is to not buy. Mm. Or if you really want something new, go and go to a charity shop or swap with a friend or rent something. But no one's going to know about the statement that you're making with that purchase or with that secondhand purchase if it doesn't have this awesome slogan on the front. So it's really, really hard, isn't it? Yeah, what totally. Kind of, what kind of ways do you think we should be challenging ourselves to kind of subvert the norms and and try and be a bit more feminist in our everyday actions when it comes to clothing and what we buy I think one of those things is going back to that social acceptance why do you want to be seen to be making a statement with your clothes Mm. and saying a certain thing can you say it in a different way or could you even look at there are so many women and gender equity and gender rights organizations that produce ethical things with slogans that appeal to the work that they're doing rather than buying it from Topshop you could buy I know the Fawcett Society do some brilliant kind of branded things and the money from that all of the actual sourcing of it is ethical um and the production of it is ethical but the money also goes towards supporting an incredible charity working on women and gender equality here in the uk you know there's a way of still being able to consume but from investing it into something where you are actually lifting up like women and girls rights or gender non-binary rights um there's also the way of do i need to say it at all can i say it in another way can i use my voice can i use social media to talk about my feelings about this could i even look at printing it myself like in an ethical way can i look into doing that and i appreciate people don't have time i don't have time you know to do those kind of things um so it i think it's you know it's only something for people who have that time but is there just a way that you can feel like you're saying it and you're standing behind the cause but you don't have to necessarily wear it emblazoned on a t-shirt lovely um 
I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the marketing of lots of fast fashion brands and the kind of general feel of the stores at the moment. I obviously really, I mean, I only walk into a to a fast fashion store now to kind of do an Instagram story about why people shouldn't walk in. Um, but I am really noticing when I walk past this kind of like ethereal feeling and and it's, it's all very kind of... Um, kind of minimal and, and Swedish and I'd love to talk to you a little bit about some of the kind of imagery that's being used in these shops mm. and, and your feelings about how they're kind of marketing the product. Mm. So I think for me you know and I was sharing a, an example earlier but when you go into some of these fast fashion stores it's exactly how you say it. it's ethereal it's breezy it's all white it's clean um and actually one of the things that i've noticed is this sort of focus in on how it's designed and how it's made being the purporter of the brand so you know i was in another stories the other day and um it says stockholm atelier on it um you know and Actually, the imagery around the store is, uh, you know, uh, white hands cutting the fabric and stitching and so on and so forth. And for me, you know, especially as a person of color, when you look at that, you know that the reality is, yes, that organization is headquartered and the designs are definitely coming from Sweden and there's no denying that. But the fact that there's this sort of illusion portrayed that by being designed and made by fair hands sat in Europe, that there's an equality and that you're buying into something that has... Um, I guess more of an ethical feel to it rather than seeing the real conditions and the real people who are making your clothes who are probably sat in very cramp, pro probably light denied uh, conditions in another part of the world. Those hands are people of color's hands. Um, and there's something that's just framed in the way that now you're consuming fashion because people know that like fashion being feminism being ethical is fashionable as well and so how can your brand create this illusion of being clean of being doing things the right way of upholding rights and you know Scandinavia is an amazing amazing part of the world for upholding gender equality and upholding gender rights you know their whole structure is something that we can aspire to the rest of the world um, but the fact is is playing on that notion of this great country where things are together, their welfare state works, um, you know, uh, the people are beautiful and fashionable and on trend. Um, that's being sold to us when we walk into that store that actually my clothes are being made and, and conceived of in this beautiful, ethereal, ethical place where the reality is that it's not, it's still being produced in the same places. I'm sure that um, other fast fast fashion places are also producing their clothes and it's definitely not being stitched and and the patterns are not being cut by by white hands mm. they're being um they're being cut by people of color and i think it just for me it really plays into this whole notion of uh, i guess like neo-colonialism that you know progression is sat in the global north and poverty and backwardness is sat in the global south of the world um and for me it's 
you know, there's a responsibility to to actually market in a way that levels that playing field and doesn't just continue to enforce that kind of background narrative. So when can fashion be used as a force for good? When can it be used positively? Have you seen instances of fashion being used in a positive way? So, I mean, I think fa- like, you know, and I'm a, I'm a lover of fashion. I love fashion myself. And, you know, I love buying like materials from different stores when I'm traveling for work um, and I will get them stitched in a certain way I will wear them I get old stuff from my from my family and friends and I love clothes and the reality is is you know we're not going to by simply not consuming we're not going to change like you know as women women and girls have always been a part of the fashion industry. They make up 80% of the workforce around the world are women and girls who are in these factories. And, you know, there is something hugely positive about the force for good that fashion can be. You know, the fact that those people are in, they're getting an income, that's huge for, for equality. You know, that woman who would not have... Um, a job within a clothing factory stitching your clothes for her you know that is her form of rights it is her form of autonomy the fact that she's earning autonomously the fact that she's able to get out of the home and work uh, and earn her own money bank it all of those things are, are deeply empowering and can be really empowering for women and girls um but the reality is is that at the moment the fashion industry isn't recognizing all the things that enable her to see that just one job as being lift up so you know, she she needs to be able to go into a space where she's not going to face harassment, that she is going to be able to work good hours, that her health isn't going to be compromised. There also needs to be wider changes in this in society that um, can be enabled from her working. At the moment, I was saying, you know, she has her own money. The reality is, is if she hasn't got her rights realized, she will return home to her family and to her partner and all her money would be stripped from her. And he might deploy it or use it as he sees fit and actually her autonomy isn't there in a lot of countries women are they cannot buy land they cannot hold a bank account so you also have to work on actually enabling that woman to be able to have that money for herself um, and to be able to make decisions on it and there are many countries where that's not enabled so I think there's that ability for like the fashion industry as just a huge employer to be able to really change things for women and girls around the world but also you know what I also love about clothing and I love about textiles is just this deep history that exists around the world with it I know this amazing brand um called 1111 um which is you know based around Uh, slow fashion it's uh, about reviving cottage industries in India um, through um, through weaving of khadi and khadi is this old form of of um, cotton weaving that's indigenous to India Um, and the brand uses biological dyes natural dyes it has a seed to stitch model and those you know those kind of models of fashion are have like such a transformative effect for everyone in that supply chain if you're sourcing that cotton from fair trade farms where again most of the people are women and girls who are working in that those agricultural plantations if it's being done without pesticides you're not 
you know, you're not polluting the actual food that they're eating off those same farms or in adjacent farms. Um, if you're weaving things in a traditional way, you're bringing together small communities together into like collective ownership models. Um, and I think another one that I'm really, really excited about is um, a group called AFEDES, uh, which are, is an association of indigenous women weavers in Guatemala. And they've been supported by a fellow foundation of ours, Thousand Currents. And what they've recognized is, you know, that there are, there's all these weavers across Guatemala working on that beautiful, really vibrant colors and weaves. And you know, these are indigenous groups that are really at risk. You know, their rainforests, their living conditions are being completely decimated for profit. Um, they are indigenous groups we know are upholders of the climate. They are the ones that are at the front line. Most of them are dying trying to protect the land from logging, from mining, from deforestation. They're right on the front lines. Um, and one of the things that uh, Angelina, who runs AFEDES um, from the Guatemalan community, she always says is, you know, textiles and our weaves are the history that the colonizers didn't burn. So, so many of their of these ancient civilizations through colonialism have been completely decimated. Um, no books, no records, no buildings exist um, that talk about their history and their culture. But the weaves in their fabrics do. These beautiful, elaborate, handmade, um, you know, weaves that tell histories of entire populations of people. And what I find amazing about this group, Aferdes, in, in Guatemala, is that they've all come together, these various indigenous groups that all have their different dialect languages, they're in different parts of the country, um, and they all have their own distinct weaving techniques. And, you know, one of us, we could walk into Zara or H&M right now and buy something that looks like a, you know, um, Mesoamerican weave or a Guatemalan weave. But it doesn't have that history. It doesn't have that understanding that sits behind it. And so what they've done is this incredible landmark case, which is they've appealed to the international court and to the court of their country to actually give the their weaves intellectual property. So in the same way that when you buy champagne, it has to be from the champagne region of France, it has to be grown in a certain way, a certain type of grape, a certain type of manufacturing technique, and only then can you call it champagne. It's the same way of recognizing that those weaves can't be replicated in factories around the world and mass produced. They have an intellectual property that sits with those indigenous groups around the world. And for me, I think that's the future of fashion, mm -hmm. that there is this, those kind of handmade histories and techniques that are really made at the hands of women and girls and small artisan communities around the world. That's our way of saying, you know, we see the work that you're doing. We want to, you know, we want to consume something that holds history, that holds power, that holds memory um, for you. And it also looks beautiful as well. And by buying it, by investing in it, 
we are investing in the future of this history and for the generations of indigenous people that are going to come after that they can be proud that people are wearing their products that are made in an ethical sustainable way that also upholds these really ancient forms of working which i just i think that what they've done is such a great model for what other indigenous groups can do across the world, not only to secure their communities and their livelihoods and the empowerment of their people, but also to give the world these beautiful pieces of fabric or or other types of materials that we can use to clothe ourselves, but something that actually honors the development of that textile and doesn't just negate it. Mm. I feel like so many fingers are currently tapping furiously into google to research these clothes and see how beautiful they are i know i'm definitely gonna have a look when i get home let's finish with some fun stuff because we've covered so much ground thank you so much for everything you've shared i would love to know as i know you're such a such a foodie uh what your three kitchen essentials are and these are three ingredients that knowing you have them in your kitchen make you feel more relaxed about life oh so uh, cumin is definitely one. You could get anything, I think. And just with some roasted cumin, some ground cumin, some popped cumin just changes the whole flavor. So I always have cumin in my kitchen. Salt, I think as well. Just good pink Himalayan salts can just change things. You can even just have tomatoes or cucumber with just a little bit of salt on top. And it just transforms it. So that's definitely my second and then my third, you know what? There is a spice mix that my mum makes for me, um, which is, an, it's called an achar. So achar being a type of pickling set of spices. And I don't know what she puts in it, but I sprinkle that on anything, on a piece of toast, on a bit of fruit, on it. I can put it into my dals and I can make really quick dals, which is just you soak your lentils, you boil it, and then you just fry off some of this spice mix and add it in. It literally is the most delicious thing. So this achar mix is my third. So it's all spice related, but I'm Indian. So I think that's <laughs> probably why. <laughs> I love that. Okay. How would you feel about a quick fire? Go for it. Quick fire with Swati breakfast lunch or dinner lunch tea or coffee tea porridge or toast porridge marmite or jam jam cumin or paprika cumin lemons or limes lemon chili or garlic chili tomato based or coconut based curry tomato based cook at home or go out for dinner cook at home the lion king or aladdin aladdin sex in the city or girls girls beer or wine wine chocolate or nut butter chocolate talking or taste buds taste buds that was very good that was very quick penultimate question what feeds your soul this doesn't have to be food related but this is something that just makes you feel uplifted about life i think for me just Sometimes the news can feel so overwhelming with negative stories about what's happening in the world. And honestly, for me, the resilience and the brilliance of what local activists are doing in communities around the world just 
makes me feel so, so hopeful for the future. And it gives me a real sense of reassurance that even in the face of like the most dire, awful circumstances, you find these incredible local leaders of any age, including young girls, changing the world. Like for me, that's there can be no better reassurance that the world's heading in the right way. We just need to give them platform voice and resources. Awesome. And finally, what is your death row dinner? And I'm so excited to hear this. Starter, main and dessert. <gasps> oh my gosh. So um, my starter would be there are there's an Indian dish called Pani Puri, uh, which are these kind of... Um, uh, like little fried balls, essentially hollow balls, and they um, you put uh, chickpeas and potato and tamarind sauce and pomegranates and lots of spices and fresh coriander, and then you have like a mint tamarind water that fills it up and you kind of eat them in one go like I think I've had these I think I had this at yeah. them in a in an Indian restaurant in Shepherd's Bush weirdly with one with the Bosch guys who have been on the podcast they introduced yeah. me they, they were so like a taste sensation oh my god they're amazing so that's like typical Delhi street food um so I would definitely have golgappas or pani puri to um to as a starter I just love them and then I think for Maine, oh, it's a toss-up between two dishes. So my mum makes this incredible um, dish that lots of, I'm from Punjab in India, but Punjabis eat Rajma Javal, which is um, just rice with uh, curried kidney beans. And it's honestly just heavenly and it's comfort food. Um, and then my other one from her would be padure uh, chole, which are these kind of fried fluffy breads that you have with curried chickpeas and then with kind of tamarind onions on the side. Um, so it'd be one or the other, depending on how I'm feeling. And then I'm actually not a major dessert person, so I don't know what my dessert would be. You could just forego it altogether, but I'd be disappointed not to hear about more of the food that you like. Um, I think if I did have dessert, um, there's this one amazing dish actually that you only get in a small part of Old Delhi. Um, and it's called Dalat Gijat, which means, um, I guess like nectar of the heavens. And it's sort of made by milk maidens, um, it's frothed up sort of unpasteurized um, ends of sort of the milk and they sort of mix it with pistachios and uh, with rose water and fluff it and they lay it out on the um, rooftops and it's literally only for about two months of the year that you can make this dessert um, and they lay it out on the top of um, the houses around Old Delhi and actually the moonlight is what um, what froths up the milk into the morning and it's like really light, it's really airy and it's just this really specialized dish that, I don't know, for me it makes me think that's, you know, people have been eating that for hundreds of years and it gives me this connection back to like a, a foregone history um, and it's really special. I think I probably, I probably have it maybe once every two or three years because I have to be in Delhi at the right time. I am so glad I pressed you for that answer. <laughs> Thank you 
you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. It was such an honour and a privilege for me to sit down with someone as well-informed as Thwathi. She really is brilliant and she has so much knowledge around this topic. As always, I will leave links to my brilliant guests in the show notes. And I have a whole back catalogue of episodes for you to enjoy if you're new here. Some favourites for me from this series are Lucy Siegel, Jack Harris and Livia Firth. Some other noteworthy episodes from previous seasons include Dolly Alderton, Clara Ampho, The Happy Pair and Bosch. Thank you again for listening and I hope you're having the most wonderful day. Bye bye! Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.